Welcome to the Regen Brands Podcast. This is a place for consumers, operators, and investors to learn about the consumer brands supporting regenerative agriculture and how they're changing the world. This is your host, Kyle, joined by my co-host, AC, who's going to take us into the episode. On this episode, we have Bree Warner, who is the CEO at Atlantic Sea Farms. Atlantic Sea Farms is supporting regenerative agriculture with its various regenerative seaweed products grown using regenerative aquaculture practices. In this episode, we learn about the deep fisherman livelihood and economic development vision driving the company. We get educated on what makes growing seagrass regenerative. And we discuss with Bree how we can scale vertically integrated, regenerative, and women-run businesses like Atlantic Sea Farms and others. Bree is an absolute powerhouse of a human. She dropped so much knowledge on us that it resulted in our longest episode ever, but it is well worth your time. And it was fascinating and inspiring to get to know her, the brand, and their big plans for the future. Let's dive in. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Regen Brands podcast. Very excited today to have our first ocean-based brand, and we have Bree Warner from Atlantic Sea Farms with us. So welcome, Bree. So psyched to be here, guys. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Uh, for anybody who's listened to episode zero, they know that I was a dive master in a previous life. Mm. Uh, I grew up in Southern California near the ocean. The ocean is near and dear to my heart. So I am incredibly stoked to have our first regenerative aquaculture brand on the pod. Um, so we can kind of share that story and the power of kelp with our audience. Mm. Um, so super, super excited. But before we dive into all the cool stuff and all the origin story and like that, Bree, for those who are unfamiliar with Atlantic Sea Farms, give us a quick rundown. What products do you produce? Where can people find you today? So you can find Atlantic Sea Farms products in retail locations across the country, particularly your natural and organic grocery stores like Whole Foods, Sprouts, Moms, Wegmans, uh, mm. Fresh Market, Fresh Time, you know, kind of anywhere where you can find natural groceries. And we produce several different products. You can head over to where you buy your kimchi or sauerkrauts for mm. our fermented seaweed salad, which is an analog to that bright green seaweed salad that has all sorts of stuff that you don't want to know what's mm. in it uh, that you get at sushi restaurants. Ours is a, fer- oh. is a traditionally barrel fermented fresh mm. seaweed that's delicious, uh, as well as a, a seaweed based kimchi. The first of its kind, as far as I know, I just got back from Korea and I saw no seaweed kimchis, which I was shocked <laughs> at. Um, and then I uh, then we then you can go to your freezer section where if you check out your veggie burgers, uh, we just launched a mm. sea veggie burger, which you guys got to have a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, and it, it was phenomenal. Delicious. It was probably one of the best veggie burgers I've ever had in my life. No joke. Thanks. All the products people, were really good. Really good. Thank you. Well, people talk about our sea veggie burger as the kind of product that tastes a whole lot like the veggie burgers of old that actually tasted like vegetables and yeah, real the ones that were made of food instead of yes. seed oil. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's all full ingredients. And then you can head over to your smoothie section as well, where we have blueberry kelp cubes and cranberry <laughs> kelp cubes for your everyday smoothie. We're going to talk about some of this a little bit later, but the, the challenges of marketing a brand in various aisles. But before we get there, um, I want, like, I, I, I do and I don't want to ask you this question because I love the seaweed salad at sushi restaurants. And you just sort of like killed it potentially. So, what is in those that we don't want to know about? 
So all the same thing that's in Peeps, for example, that blue five and yellow one what? and, you know, all that really? stuff. Like seaweed is not that color. Come on. If you were in the ocean diving, Kyle, and you saw something that was that color, wouldn't you be terrified? Well, I mean, that I've is seen not some natural. vibrant, bright green sea grasses before, um, but it's a good point. Like to see it on your plate, who knows how many days, years, months later. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, yep, it's well, lots of dyes. It's also imported dried and then mm, rehydrated. And be gross. because it's rehydrated, it's like, you know, it's exactly. And and then um, a bunch of colors are added to it. And there's also some other things that people demonize that they shouldn't like MSG, which is actually really delicious. We don't use it. Um, mm. But you know that's been bastardized for a number of years for perceptions. But there's also a lot of other preservatives in there that make, if you can keep seaweed salad in your refrigerator without any fermentation or pickling for four months, uh, there's something wrong with the food. Mm. There's something that that's not natural in there. So our seaweed salad is fresh. It's blanched, shredded, immediately barrel fermented with no accelerators. Uh, we do it in literal barrels. We mix everything wow. by hand. Uh, and then it gets fermented and it's got all those healthy probiotics, but also has that delicious kind of natural crunch and a little bit of a green color because when we blanch it, it turns it green. So no dyes, no preservatives, just really good natural food. Well, I'm really glad that, you know, we, we killed the sushi seaweed salad, but you gave us an alternative at the same time. So it's not like it's completely <laughs> re removed from our lives. Um, so that, I appreciate right. that kind of like one-two combo. Man. It's, I mean, it's delicious to get this stuff out there and uh, be able to show people that, you know, right now there's three ways that people eat seaweed in the United States. It's dried into, you know, dashis and things which is a delicious way to eat seaweed seaweed snacks mm. uh and or bright green seaweed salad and then mm. there's of course nori wraps for sushi but that's uh you know that's a different variety uh but you know that's that's how people think that that you can eat seaweed that's three ways there are thousands of others and so mm. when you say where can you find us you can also find us our products are in thorn nutraceuticals green drinks they're in Navinas. Mm. Uh, I drink Navinas. that. It's I take so good every day. There Let's you go. go. So you can you're getting kelp in there. Same with like Navinas just came out with a super green, super you know like a Love sea that. greens blend. Um, mind blown seafood company, plant based seafood company with their blind blow brand is using it in their plant based scallops, their plant based crab cakes. You wow. can even get it in plastic bags and plastic straws with lollyware and sway who are using wow. it as a component into their bioplastics. So I just named sort of our, our, our place that people see <laughs> us, but there's so many ways that our seaweed is being used beyond just sort of the everyday yeah. use. Love that. And I mean, it's so excited to dive more just into the utility and also kind of like how seaweed is grown and why it's regenerative and all those things, which, you know, but I, I want to, I want to start back because the, the story of the brand is a very personal story really with your path, Brie. And, we got a little background on you before the episode and I'm like, is this woman running for president or is she running like uh, you know, an ocean based CPG brand? Like what's this, this one's been a diplomat. She's the kelp queen, you know, she's got it going on. So just take us through like your personal journey and how Atlantic sea farms came to be. Uh, that's really nice of you to say. I think I am good in my lane of, of trying to produce regenerative <laughs> food. But really what we are, we are trying to create a movement um, way beyond just sort of a food product. And I think that is something mm. that's really different about us is that 
what we're doing, if we do it right, we've proven something that others haven't. Um, mm. And it's not about kelp. It's kelp is part is is the is part of the solution. But really, what we're trying to prove is that climate change adaptation and mitigation can come by relying on the people that mm. uh, you know already already are working. I think so. Let me let me rephrase that. So much in climate change adaptation and mitigation strategy, we think about throwing robots at it. We mm. think about these big tech solutions, these big ideas that mm -hmm. millionaires and billionaires throw money at to talk about how they are solving global climate change by growing giant wind towers and planting giant kelp farms. Or you know, mm -hmm. the, the ideas are so unachievable, mm. and I think often we approach climate change and food as if we either can't do anything because mm. we're not billionaires mm -hmm. or we have to always look to these kind of moonshot solutions right. for answers to something that we actually have the answer to right in our backyard. And it's not just mm -hmm. us. It's also just looking to the people who are really talented and skilled all over the United States and elsewhere, but I, I'll just speak for us in the U.S. Like our biggest richness in the U.S. is our people. It's mm. not our land. It's not our technology. It's us. Mm. And so we so often overlook that. And my my background, I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from coal country. Um, mm. you know, I've seen the end of natural resources really hit communities hard, and I've seen people mm. put their the sand and pretend like it wasn't happening, even though the mm. writing had been on the wall for ages. And I came from an area where yeah. there's there's no hope, honestly. Mm. And we're 30, 40 years out now from there being viable natural resource-based industries and people are still waiting for the white whale to come in. Mm. And I you know, was a diplomat for a number of years. I worked in economic development and I came to Maine about 10 years ago. And what was really exciting to be about Maine. There's a lot of things that are exciting to be about Maine. I feel like if, mm. if I should have any job, it should be like carrying the banner of, of like Maine. <laughs> the state of Maine. Um, the Maine state champion. of Maine. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I just have so many good things to say about it, not being of the place, but yeah. you know, not only is it beautiful, not only do we have these amazing resources and all the reasons that people want to go to Maine, but what we also has is if you look out on the coast, we have this rocky, gorgeous, clean, nutrient dense coastline, we also have 4,000 plus lobster license holders that are making their mm. income on the water and they're mm. doing it successfully. 10 of mm. the best years in lobster have been in the last 20. They're reinvesting in conservation ethics into their mm. own industry that is making that industry boom. So oh, we're yeah. seeing more lobsters in the past awesome. 10 years than we have before. There's a darker side to that, which is mm. because of the world around us nothing to do with the lobster industry itself, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 98% of oceans in the world. Wow. And no, wow. Matter, no matter what we do to conserve this industry, lobster larvae will no longer survive at the rate that they are now mm. at some point in the future. And so wow. that setting that up, like economic development, like we could stick our head in, in the sand or the water, however you want to look yeah. at it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and pretend like this kind of like that we, we did everything right, which we did in this mm. industry. We've really invested in our people. We have 4,000 plus lobster license holders that are individual owner operators. There's no big mm. fleets. If you are fishing on your boat, you must be the license holder. 
It's, there's no sort of like big men dominating the industry. There are these 4,000 individual business owners that are keeping working waterfront moving in Maine that, you know, you go to Oregon or California and it's yachts. You go to Maine, it's Mm. locked roads. We definitely mm. have our share of yachts, which we'd like to not increase. <laughs> uh, but we we have a lot of working waterfront. We have more yeah. than most other states, and so, like, how do we keep that? You know, and how mm. do we take the f- amazing human capital that we have on our coast, and mm. and have them look at themselves and say, okay, what can we do to diversify? Because we want lobster to always be there. It will likely always be there in some way or another, but it's mm. going to be changing. And we're overly reliant on one species. And that mm. is dangerous mm. for whether there's climate change or not, mm-hmm. that's dangerous. It leaves us very vulnerable. So how can we be looking at our incredible human capacity and our incredible natural capacity of more coastline than the state of California and think about how we can diversify in the face of climate change and adapt. Wow. All right, so you just threw a lot it. of stats. You just threw a lot of stats at me that I wasn't aware of. That coastline, more coastline than the state of California. That's crazy. I didn't know that. And yeah. I want to circle back to something you started with, which is like we're spending billions of dollars on direct air capture. And it's like direct air capture has been around for billions of years, bro. It's called photosynthesis. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> like exactly. it already exists. All right. And it doesn't cost any money, actually. It's the funny thing yeah. about it. Um, but that is, that's incredible. So, you know, how did you get involved in, you know, solving those problems for the lobster industry that led to this? Like, what was the next step to you seeing all well, that? And then it I get, turning into this. I want to I go one step before that, before we went mm-hmm. in, like solving those problems. Like, why did you want to solve those problems? Why mm. was that important to you? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think on the coastline of California, because I can see Kyle's California being like, what the hell? I'm I can see his head tilting. So it's because we have all these inlets and islands exactly. that give us more coast. Yep. Yep. Uh, but so I, I, I saw him looking at the map. It, it must be those like cookie cutter inlets <laughs> that go sideways yep. all the time. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly it. Um, <laughs> I love that. I saw it. I see Californians go through this every time. Like, no, but we're the biggest. <laughs> when you look at, you look at a map, it's like your brain doesn't make sense of that. But if it's it a doesn't. detailed enough map, which mine probably isn't. Um, yeah, anyways. Off yeah, topic. but, I will, but uh, I will say who, who really trumps us both is Alaska. Alaska yeah. has more coastline than, than I think California and Maine combined. So mm. that they, they got us on that. So why did, why did I want to help? Why did I want to get involved? I think when I came back to, from Maine and I saw, you know, I saw how we kind of always wait and I felt a little bit helpless as a diplomat, just mm. being like, God, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. We're always waiting. We're always reactive. We're never sort of proactively getting out in front of things. And when I came to Maine, I fell in love with the place immediately. Mm. Uh, my husband's a Mainer. Uh, and so mm. I had been a lot and that's, that's why we came here. But the you know the the place is the kind of place that we all want to raise our kids in because of mm. trees. Um, but you know, like <laughs> we don't, people don't like. One time I was out on an island. I think for an illustrative point, I was out on an island and I, uh, I it was pouring, so I couldn't walk where I was going. So I called one of the islanders and said, like, "Hey, can you come pick me up?" And she said, "I'm not on the island, but you can use my car." And I was like, well, how do I get your keys? She's like, she's like, they're in the car. I'm like, well, Duh. your keys are in the car. Like, what? If, she was like, well, yeah. What if someone needs it? And like, wow, I think man, like that is awesome. that is sort of like the communities that we live in, yeah. and it's it's the it's one of those last places in the United States where where you feel like 
you know, it's it's the kind of place you want to replicate. It's the kind of place you want to be. Your neighbors check on you. It's a community that supports each other. It's mm. it's a place where like niceness prevails. It's you know, mm. and and I think and and nature is everywhere, and food is everywhere, and people invest in beautiful things. And I think it was it was Anthony Bourdain who said Maine people invest in you know, beautiful food and beautiful and simple, beautiful things that make their everyday. Like, it's just a place mm. where people value small things. And, and um, mm. you know, so for me, it felt like this place that, you know, you want to be, you want to be part of, you want to be part of the fabric. And I had gotten a job as an economic development director for an organization that was really focused on making sure that island and coastal communities in Maine were preserved into the future and allowing people mm. to kind of be who they've always been because there is, because it is a place that everyone wants to be, there's mm. a lot of downward pressure from people who want second homes on the coast of Maine, people who want to come mm. up and see the coast for two months, as, two weeks as their playground and then go back down to their house in Boston or Philadelphia or, or New York right. or whatever. Um, and, and they kind of take it as this token of a place, not as, as a place where real people, where we all kind of see this this way of life as being something that's part of our everyday. And so there's a lot of downward pressure on housing. There's a lot of, you know, gentrification of the coast that's taking up working a really important and irreplaceable working waterfront. Uh, mm. There's there's a lot of those conversations going on. So working for the organization that was looking at saying like, how can we keep year round coastal communities as these schools go from 60 mm. kids, kids to 30 kids to 20 kids? Yeah. Like at what point do we lose these year round communities that mean everything to who we are? And the way that we do that is making sure they're year round viable, rewarding income. Mm. And mm. lobster right now is keeping these communities thriving. Mm. And, um, you know, we are all equally concerned, including those within the lobster industry, about how long that will last at the level that it currently is. So mm. I started working with fishermen along the coast and saying like, okay, guys, what can we do to diversify? And it became very clear to me that oysters, mussels, seaweed, and scallop aquaculture were a way to both give back to the environment, make the environment better, provide people with nutrient-dense regenerative foods, and help people adapt to climate change by leaning into the skills that they're really good at and the, and the mm. skills that they have to continue to be in these heritage industries and be, be who they are. You know, you can't take a fisherman and put them behind a hotel desk <laughs> because that right. would kill tourism industry but number two because like nobody would come to Maine nobody yeah. would come to Maine they'd be like oh my gosh that was a terrible experience um but also that's not what they're good at and it's not and that's what we often do like why can't coal miners make solar panels well because mm. that's the skill set mm. and so I you know with seaweed in particular it's a perfect off-season income it's complementary to lobster it uses the same equipment that people use to lobster uh, same you know general staffing like a sternman you know uh, same kind of territory of water off season but there was no buyer in the country and no one making seaweed mm. in the products so that was 2018 and the entire country grew 30,000 pounds of seaweed at that time um, but wow. millions, that's Nothing. it, 30,000 30, pounds total. And we were importing tens of millions of pounds for wow. snacks, sushi. Opportunity. That's yeah. exactly right. And mm. so uh, it felt to me like 
um, it was a great opportunity. So I raised some funding and we started a fund basically with this coastal organization to invest in the first commercial seaweed farm in the country. The company was named Ocean Approved and mm. say, okay, let's expand your, sea your supply chain to uh, include fishermen. And after about a year, the, it, there was a founder transition and I was asked to take over as CEO. And that was 2019. And here we are in 2023. And this year we worked with 27 partner farmers. We're just starting our new harvest season as of this week. And we plan to process, to process around 1.3 million pounds of kelp. Wow. Let's Insane. go. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. That's crazy. My mind can't do the math because the numbers are too different, like 30,000 pounds to 1.3. Like, what's the growth factor there? It's a lot. Like, it's, it's too many times. Lots of times. <laughs> yeah, and we're still just a speck. Yeah, we always are like, we're the vast majority of seaweed grown in the United States, line-grown seaweed in the United States, but we're still 0.001% of all the line-grown seaweed grown in the world. So we have a lot wow. of growing to do, and we have a lot of opportunity. And I think, you know, what we really do is we produce the seeds. So we're super vertically integrated. We produce the seeds you know, back to like, why did I do this? The answer is, how do I make it look like lobster to get fishermen to come in? We need to provide the bait. Mm. So the bait ah, is the smart. seed. So we produce mm. all of the seed in-house. There's also no one else I could buy it from. So I can't be like, oh, let me just go to that. How do you produce kelp seed? Yeah. 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 Well, uh, there's what we're doing now and what we want to do in the future. And what we're doing now is basically putting on a snorkel and, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, going, <laughs> going to the beds that we know are really, really healthy in the fall. So around August, um, and literally diving on those beds, uh, wow. picking up the best mom and dads that we think would be, you know, great parent material for our, wow. our land grown seaweed. And we harvest around 10 pounds for every 400,000 pounds we grow. So we're really Dang. not touching the beds. It's like no no disintegration wow. of the beds at all um, can i come volunteer and, to help do this like this sounds it's like so such a fun. great day i would love so, to come honestly kyle life. this year my staff didn't bring me along and like we're like <laughs> very very clear that they didn't need my help anymore which i was like what like i've been yeah. doing this for four years but apparently mm -hmm. i'm not needed anymore um so it is a fun so, day th yeah, those we'll, beds we'll, we'll, we'll are day. natural beds and then you're using the seed for the line grown. Is that correct? Yep. So kelp okay. starts to feel real sexy around August and starts producing kind <laughs> of uh, seed <laughs> to start reproducing. And so we go and look for kind of the healthiest seed, the largest some kelp. Sexy ass kelp. Some sexy kelp. Like you're down there and you're like pointing at your colleague, like, look at this one. This one looks ready. Um, and then you bring it in and... Uh, you know, if you were if you were letting the seaweed just sort of let go of its seed tissue throughout the year, you know, in the water, mm -hmm. it would slowly release. What we do is we make it feel like it just got washed up on the beach. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to wait for the tide to come in and then I'm going to release everything. So mm -hmm. we basically, it's a very natural process. You know, we just put it in a dark cooler. Um, mm. and then the next day we bring it out. We, we, what, what we do is it, they call it sporing it off. we let the, we basically let the spores release into natural seawater that we just grab from the ocean. Um, and then the little kind of sporlings look for something to attach to. So they swim mm. around and we give it two mm. PVC pipes with twine wrapped around it. And it looks to kind of attach to twine. It grabs onto that twine and holds on. And that's where it will grow for the next six months. So, 
We bring it, we keep it in our nursery for about 45 days, no inputs, just fresh seawater, 12 hours daylight, 12 hours night. And then we give it to our partner farmers um, about, you know, 45 days later. And it's a PVC pipe with kind of like brown. It almost looks like, um, I don't know, it almost looks like, uh, you know, hair almost. Uh, yeah. You like throw it out on a, on a tube. You yeah. give it to farmers. We give our seed for free to our farmers. They tie wow. it to the end of, uh, of a mooring line. And then they unravel that at a thousand uh, for a thousand feet horizontally, attach it to the other mooring, and then let it sit for the next six months. They check it, they tighten it, um, but that's how it grows. No water, no arable lands, no pesticides, no inputs. Um, and then at what depth? At what depth? Like, are people like hitting these, or like, is there a way that they could get damaged? Uh, there definitely is ways. Uh, we mark them really, really, really well. Uh, so, okay. and also, if you're if you're boating in January in Maine, then you're not paying attention to where you're going. <laughs> if you miss the buoys, then you're doing something very, very wrong, and you shouldn't be uh, out there in negative ten degree weather. Uh, but Jeez. you know, they yeah, it's it's nasty. Uh, so we have everything really well marked. It's about seven feet under the water, so it's mm. there's very little visual impact at all other than mooring balls. And then it grows it around. We usually have those set around 30 to 50 feet uh, mm. for the mooring. So, you know, it grows 10, 12 feet long by the end of the year. And we just started harvest season now. It's it's April 20th. So super exciting. Wow. There's, there's a few things I need to expand on here. Um, it's fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. Aquaculture is so cool. Um, yeah, and I, I read Eat, "Eat Like a Fish" by Brent Smith a while back, and that was like my indoctrination into aquaculture. And it was like absolutely mind blowing, the coolest book mm -hmm. I've ever read. Um, but even prior to us talking about that, what I really liked about um, something you said about how the power of changes with, within the people, and like your statements that were just so empowering about how individuals have the ability to make a huge impact. And I think that's really important to call out for, you know, why we're doing the Regen Brand Podcast is because we want to educate mm. individuals that they can make purchasing decisions that can have a huge positive impact. And that power mm. really does come down to the individual. So just wanted to highlight that really like aligned with a lot of what we talk about and the other folks we bring on in this podcast. So that was super cool. Um, number two, we sort of skipped some of the, I mean, we, we briefly covered, I think mm. you mentioned the power of bivalves and regenerative aquaculture. Kind of like give us some stats. Talk about, you know, you know, how did yeah. you first learn that these were regenerative? What was appealing to it or about it to you? Um, how did you convey that message to the fishermen? Um, walk us through that process. And and like what what about the agronomics of actually producing these like makes them regenerative and like is so good? Because I think that's yeah. that's the money piece, right? Yeah, it is. I think um, you know, there's I always get this sort of superior attitude when I'm on a, like, on, a, on a panel with like someone who's like, I do regenerative beef. I'm like, okay, regenerative beef. Like, like sure, it's better than non-regenerative meat, but like, let's talk mm. about actual regeneration. And I think seaweed mm. is, you know, people know generally that seaweed is good for the environment. I mm. think in some ways it is oversold. I think you hear a lot about mm. carbon carbon sequestration, for example. Mm. Um, you know, for, you guys know this, but maybe some of your your listeners might not. That sequestration means permanently stored away. Right. When you eat something, your body mm. is not a carbon sink. 
We can't right. just continue to add carbon to our body and it just gets loaded up there until the day we die. And then, you know, if we ate a ton of seaweed salad, uh, you know, when we were 88, maybe that works. Uh, but mm. like you know, throughout <laughs> your lifetime, but what is really impressive about seaweed is more, you know, it's, it's actually kind of more interesting than carbon sequestration. And I think right now we're all just looking for that silver bullet. So that sequestration mm. piece is mm. what everybody wants to talk about because it feels like, oh, here's an answer. We're going to solve climate change, sequestration. Mm. And mm. people kind of go to that when it's, when the reality is the solution is regenerative cattle, it's regenerative mm. vegetables. It's all it's of it. Cycling. It's cycling, it's, not sequestration. It's all of it. It's right. all when of it. And it's being better. To your point, everybody's got that carbon tunnel vision. And I was actually really mm. encouraged by a lot of the conversations uh, on, at Climate Day um, for Expo West. Is it, it felt to me like the industry was kind of taking a step away from that carbon tunnel vision. And people I are starting to so talk too. about these cycles, which is really, really important and really needs to happen. I, it's it's exactly. I mean, I think it's it's uh, you know it's as if we're looking at our kids in school and saying they have to read Tolstoy in order to be good students, and the kids are like, I don't know how to do math. I don't know how to do math. I don't know how to be a person. I don't know. You know, we just like are but you missing. Can read Tolstoy, and that's but all you, you can read Tolstoy. Like you know, we're just like missing the whole puzzle. Like we're missing yeah. the development. Like. We're, that's one indicator of a lot of different things that we need to do. And what kelp does mm -hmm. is, you know, it's regenerative in more ways than just environmentally, but on the environmental side, it's regenerative in that it actually removes carbon nitrogen from the water column. So where mm. it grows, we've done several different studies with different organizations that have shown by drawing carbon and nitrogen out of the water, it is actually reducing the pH of the water. So, for those who aren't sort of like super into the conversation around ocean acidification, basically, as you all know, we have a lot of carbon, excess carbon in the air. What mm. most people don't know is when that heart carbon hits the ocean, which is more than 70% of our, of our world, mm. um, that ocean absorbs that carbon and it changes the pH. It makes it more acidic. Mm. That acidity works a whole lot like how you would put Pepsi on metal. Mm. You, you see that acidic the you know when you put acidic things on you know basic things they erode so just mm. assume coca-cola sitting on your hubcap for uh an hour you're going to see mm. some degradation for three weeks you're going to see some rust then you're mm. going to see a hole eaten through it's the same thing with shell bearing organisms in the ocean as that ocean becomes more acidic Shell-bearing organisms like bivalves, like more importantly phytoplankton, which is producing most mm. of the oxygen in the air, we think it's trees. It's not. It's phytoplankton. Um, you know, they're seeing that erosion and that you know it makes it harder for them to survive because they're putting all of their energy into making sure that they're rebuilding their shells rather mm. than their muscle strength, rather than their sort of like meat, or in the in the case of phytoplankton, just fighting to survive. Wow. So when you plant kelp in the water, what you're doing is you're drawing that carbon and nitrogen out of the water within that halo. So I want to make sure I'm not overselling it. It is within the halo of the kelp farm. We have done mm -hmm. trials where we've done mussels within the kelp halo on the outside and then far away. That The ocean is very, 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 very big. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> you know, like the water, water moves. So mm -hmm. planting mussels, you know, uh, a quarter mile away, 
we don't see effects, but within that mm. halo, you're seeing massive effects. In fact, you're seeing shell strength almost double as strong in only six months. You're wow. seeing muscle mass increase significantly. And that's both a combination of the fact that the muscles are able to put their energy into their meat rather than their shell, rebuilding their shell, mm. but mm -hmm. also because they're feeding, excuse me, feeding from the detritus of the kelp that is kind of feeding marine organisms there. We're also seeing ecosystem services in general. And then more importantly, you know, maybe not more importantly, but equally as importantly, when it's being served on your plate, mm. it is anything it is replaced. It is better than any single thing you could eat. Ooh, wow. spicy take wow. there. For the environment. <laughs> like okay. it will, it, no water, mm. no arable land, mm. making the ocean better. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, there's like no downside to it. Mm -hmm. So even right. it, it, so, when you're replacing broccoli, you know, people are like replacing me. I'm like, cool, replacing meat. Sure. Also yeah. replacing spinach, which yeah. uses mm -hmm. water, pesticides, <laughs> arable mm -hmm. land. You know, it's, it's better than any other thing. I have this fight with my muscle co farmer colleagues and my oyster farmer colleagues because they would argue that they are equal to seaweed. I say they're a yeah. little less. But yeah. uh, you know, I, the three of those combined—you know, aquacultured bivalves and aquacultured seaweed—are the best mm -hmm. foods on the planet that you can eat for the planet. And then you add to that the adaptive side for fishermen being able to diversify their income in the face of climate change, and then you have a mm -hmm. truly regenerative food. That—that's extraordinary. Yeah. Hey, so you go it, first. It, it makes me think about like right? The American prairie grasslands, we would have that same system with bison and other species, right? Which would be like the, what is the actual natural, uh, you know, inputs and outputs of the system, which I think on land, it's much harder to replicate or kind of, I don't want to use the word industrialize, but like mechanize or produce lots of food with, whereas it seems like this system, we can replicate that natural biodiversity and those relationships and actually like do it in a more high production way, which I think is awesome because we need the, to produce a bunch of food. Yeah. I mean, the more kelp there is, the better it is for the environment. And yeah. I think that's, that's kind of incongruent with most things that we grow. Yeah. Um, you know, like, and, <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, there is certainly an environmental caring capacity. We see it in China. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with Korea, however, they produce 33 million tons of seaweed. Wow. And seaweed they could produce so much more and the environment would continue to improve. Yeah. It's incredible. China, China has, you know, they have reached that environmental carrying capacity, but I can tell you in the United States, there is no world in which we could plant even a quarter as much as China just from mm. a social perspective. So we will mm. not get, we will never get to that environmental carrying capacity. And in the meantime, to get there, which is, you know, they produce billions, billions mm. of pounds, but mm. just getting there, you know, every sort of Korea's water where the kelp farms are. And I just got back from there on a trip with the world wildlife fund because conservation groups are sponsoring growth of as much kelp as possible because they recognize how good mm. it is for the environment. They awesome. wanted us to fly out to Korea, which world wildlife fund got us out there to say like, this is the scale where it's still even more than this would be better for Korea. Um, wow. But you can go, you can go on a boat for forty minutes and still not see the end of farms. Crazy, uh, and it's it's and the and the water is is you know regenerating with with it every time. So I think 
I think it, kelp is one of those exceptions, same with oysters and mussels, where you could really, you you know, we could, as as consumers, should not only be eating it because it's good for us, kelp mm. and mussels and oysters are super nutrient dense, right. but also the more we eat and the more we demand, the more it can be grown and the better it is for the environment and for the for coastal communities. Totally. And, and I want to touch base on the ocean acidification piece. And I really appreciate you educating us there. And mm-hmm. this is a theory that's popped up in my brain. I'm hoping you can confirm or tell me I'm completely off the mark. Um, you know, from a, a land inputs perspective, two of the worst things that happened with phosphorus and nitrogen <coughs> is the runoff that ends up in the ocean, causing carbon dead zones and contributing to ocean acidification. And mm-hmm. based on what you just said, it feels like if we could start kelp farming in some of these major runoff areas like the Gulf of Mexico, could that help to sort of mitigate some of that crisis there? Mm. Because it's utilizing the nitrogen to grow the kelp instead? There's a lot of people looking into kelp as a phytoremediation tool. It's not what we're Mm. doing. Um, Mm. You know, we're working on food sources. You don't want to have food Mm -hmm. from you know, like yeah. think about the billion dollar or billion oyster project or million oyster project. I forget the exact right. name of in it. New York. Yeah. And I, I, I can't vouch for that project one way or another. I don't know a lot about it, but think about that concept of like, but you, you know, putting a bunch of oysters in, you're not going to eat them. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah, it, it helps to clean up the environment. And, and just to explain that to the listeners, essentially people are, are putting bivalves, oysters, mussels, et cetera, into contaminated harbors and bodies of water to help to clean it up. And and what Bree's saying is like, people don't want to consume that because, you know, these, these oysters are consuming all of that pollution essentially, but they can mm. still do a really great environmental service by cleaning up that body mm. of water. That's exactly right. Now, now kelp does not absorb as much like, you know, it doesn't absorb as much the environment as bivalves, for example. So oysters are kind of bringing up a lot more intake. What kelp mm. can do is feed off nitrogen. And mm. to your point yeah. about kind of fertilizer outflow, it's the nitrogen that it can take up. The, the Both the good thing and the bad thing about kelp is it's not, you know, taking up a bunch of crap from the water, which makes mm. it really good to eat. Um, but it, but we farm it in super clean cold waters anyway. Um, but it can t- uptake nitrogen. So there is some work going on in like uh, New York, for example, right now. Uh, not New York City, but kind of uh, along the coast near like Montauk and places like that where people mm. are looking at phytoremediation. I think we're probably two or three years out from really understanding mm. what kelp can do for that purpose. It's not our business model, but I think it's exciting uh, to potentially see some of that happening. Super cool. Yeah. Bree, I want to make sure we talk about the commercial side of this, right? This has been an amazing kind of education on the backside, economic development, the agronomics, but let's talk about, you kind of went into this with the vertical integration and we kind of stopped at the agronomy, right? And I'm assuming building a brand was part of that vertical integration to have this whole system to commercialize these products and, you know, basically build that economic engine. I'd love to have you educate us on kind of, you know, what is commercializing this looks like? Why is that a challenge? I'm guessing based on kind of societal diets and like people just being uneducated about these foods, you know, what does your channel mix look like? Just talk to us about like actually building this brand and, and what that's been. Yeah. Like. That's a cakewalk. Easiest part of the job. People just, you know, when they sit down for dinner, think, you know, I want kelp. Um, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of education that needs to be done. I mean, mm. It's it's new to the United States, and um, you know, I, I it's not new to every population in the United States. Obviously, there's a lot of mm-hmm. particularly Asian American communities that have 
uh, really relied on seaweed for a really long time to be part of their how diet. How are like when you so say China produces ways. so much, like how, how do they eat it? Like I'm just so and everything, everything, really? you know, it's okay. a little bit mm. in soup, a little bit in seasoning. It's a little bit, mm. I mean, get an onigiri, get a tempura, get a rice okay. bowl, get a kimchi. Like it's, it's in every, everything, you know, wow, just a little cool. bit of umami. And the reason is because American, I'm going to bust on American diets for a second here, but like mm. until about 10 years ago, if you said umami, people would be like, well, what's that? We had of the different tastes, umami, mm. like the depth of our food was so weak. It was so yeah. like, just put salt on it. Salt is not umami. And now mm. like Japanese food is taking off. Korean food is taking off. Chinese food is, you know, coming to America in a more Chinese form rather than kind of the really delicious, beautiful cultural mix that is Chinese American yeah. food, but different. You know, it's different right. than a lot of the food that's coming now. Um, As somebody who spent four years working at P.F. Chang's, uh, <laughs> <I> can, uh, <laughs> I'm very familiar with the Americanized Chinese food. And it's, and it's great, about. right? Like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, I get really kind of uh, up and I'm, I'm Italian American and I get up in arms when people say things like, oh, that's not real <laughs> Chinese food. Yeah, <laughs> shout to it. Uh, that's not real American food. That's not real Italian, or that's not really Italian food. It's not real yeah. Chinese food or that's not real Mexican food. You're like, yeah, exactly. Because that's what we do in the US. We are right. like, bring it all. We'll make it American in some way or mm. another. And American doesn't look like hot dogs and hamburgers. American looks like mm. crazy ass ramen formulations, crazy ass burritos, <laughs> some with rice in them. Why? I don't know because we thought it would be great. <laughs> Let's carbs. try it. Let's go do it. Like, I mean, and there's, that's so cool to have a culture. Uh, like mm. that's what makes America beautiful, right? Like, you know, mm. you go into the European Union and where I worked in my last tour and you go to each country and you're like, cool, same dish in every mm. restaurant in Germany, unless mm. it's an American restaurant or a, yeah. you know, like, but they, everybody, like, there's no new, there's nothing new. What we do in America is we take all these different, the best of everything and then we smash it together. And what <laughs> people have kind of realized, what people have realized in the last, you know, 10 years or so is that umami is a really really important component that mm. three quarters of the world have known forever is one of the most important components. Mm. We're just coming onto that train. Um, so, you know, I think you're starting to see that influx of umami and that's really, you can get umami from two, three things, fish, mushrooms, and seaweed. It's kind of it. Mm. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, anchovies are delicious, not super sustainable, and not does everyone it, likes fish. Doesn't all fermentation also add umami, or am I wrong there, Brie? Uh, yeah, most of it does. Yeah, for for okay. fermented foods, it kind of has okay. that like probiot these kind of yeast strains that are like miso mm -hmm. or kind of like fermented beans. As got usually, it. it's the starters that that is always going to have like an umami flavor because it's got that mm -hmm. kind of sense. Um, you know, so I, but in the, you know, in the nineties in Pennsylvania, um, if someone said, let's go get some sushi, I'd be like, ew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now you can go to any restaurant, any grocery store in America, even if you're mm. in, you know, far Northern Maine, where there's a town that doesn't have a name, like R156 and there's sushi <laughs> takeout <laughs> and there's seaweed snacks. Right. So mm. like in the past 30 years, we have seen an explosion of seaweed onto the market. Um, so people are eating it and people are seeing the value of that taste profile. But 
the imports from Asia are not creative for the American palate. It's, mm. you know, people aren't, you know, going, people in the, in the U.S. aren't used to taking a beautiful, dried, hand-cut piece right. of seaweed and putting it in a soup that they cook for eight hours in a day. Like, it's right. not going to happen. That's not what we do here. Um, mm -hmm. There's some that do, but not much. People want convenience. And mm -hmm. so to see that innovation, you know, we, we look at that as an opportunity of 15 aisles in the grocery store. Right mm -hmm. now, seaweed is in a quarter of one. That means I have 14 and a half or 15 and a half, depending on what grocery store you're looking at, mm. aisles to tackle. And I can, I can put it in paneer. I can put it in kelp cubes. I can put it in chocolate. I can put it in crackers. I, like, where mm. do you want umami? Let's put kelp in it. And mm, let's right. put kelp in it. And so it is both the opportunity and the challenge because it's also putting seaweed out there in categories that people don't know where they are. Uh, people don't know how to find them. And you have to do a lot you know, of things like this podcast, for example. Your listeners will now mm -hmm. hear this podcast and be like, I didn't even know that I could get kelp in my smoothies. I'm going to go out and try that or a sea veggie burger. They're brand new to the market. There's nothing like this out there. And so it is both the opportunity and the challenge. And you know, we've been slowly sort of introducing first products on the outer end of grocery where like people who eat fermented foods are going to be like, sweet, yeah, seaweed, let's do it. Mm. Same with people who eat so smoothies. Like they've been putting wheatgrass, which tastes like garbage right. in, their, in their smoothies mm -hmm. for a while. Kelp is good. And, and could be inflammatory. And could be inflammatory. Yes, no, and, it's totally and, true. Often contains mold spores because it's grown indoor in an unnatural environment. Is that right? That's correct. Most of the sea, or sorry, most of the wheatgrass is grown indoor and is moldy, which is why some people feel like this uh, nausea after taking a wheatgrass shot yeah. for the first few minutes. There's one company no in Canada that does way. outdoor gro grown wheatgrass and they do it frozen. Uh, but yeah, we're way off topic now. No, um, I'm, I'm like yeah. fascinated by that. That's really good to know. Wheatgrass is. No, it's totally That's true. Simple. Well, and people are eating it in their smoothies, right? So kelp is like yeah, a much yeah. easier inclusion and better for you and much more, um, you know, adaptable. So we kind of stayed in those categories. Now we're moving toward the center of store and, you know, trying to get more conventional customers because we've built sort of our ground base of ambassadors of people who are super excited about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Now we'd love to bring that to, you know, the average eight year old who wants seaweed snacks in their mm. lunch, which they're already having, but they, their mm. parents don't know where it's from. They don't know what's in it. They don't know what water it's grown in. And uh, they don't know what labor practices were used to grow it. And mm. here we can provide something that's domestic. So I, I'm doing a video a few months from now or next month for, just a passion product project I have with this brand um, that does education for kids on eating different foods. It's called Kalamata's Kitchen. It's a beautiful Super brand. Cool. Yeah, it's they do like several children's books, and you read them about how to kind of try new foods. And anyway, mm -hmm. we're doing a video on kelp, and next month just to kind of talk about kids eating kelp. So I asked my kids last night, like, "Hey, you want to start a video? You want to like?" <laughs> talk about kelp and they're like sure whatever it's a seven to seven and five year old is what i have and they were like i was like do you know some kids don't eat kelp they're like why i'm like i don't know mm. they think it's gross and they're like well i think they're mm. gross like they don't get it like why would they think that was gross and i think like classic seven-year-old response <laughs> yeah i think they're gross right um but like you know the point being that like you know, it's all about just kids trying it, people trying it. Once it's in people's diets, we focus a lot on universities that they become buyers through their whole lives.
There's a real, like I love media and content and branding and advertising and marketing and the whole thing. So I'm biased here, but like there's such a need um, for just like an all out guerrilla style campaign for different regenerative foods like this. So like in my mind, I see a Netflix series where we go behind all this story that you've told us today. We talk about how you eat it. We talk about how it's grown. Like I see stuff like that. And I think back to like, when I was a little kid at the, at school, you know, there's a giant poster of LeBron with a milk mustache got milk. And it's like, well, I guess milk is cool. You know, it's like, so like, how, how do we recreate that for these products that are grown regeneratively? And like, it's funny, but like, it's very serious because there's a massive, uh, there's a massive like marketing machine behind a lot of the stuff that we need to replace and we need to take market share from. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you guys are doing that with this podcast, though, honestly. (laughs) Like, no, it's true. Like these market, like the way that people are getting and having, we need to reach people in a number of different directions. We need to reach people Mm. from regeneration. We need to reach people from ocean health. We need to reach people Mm. from their their care of nutrient density, taste, Mm. people Mm. who want to see farmers and fishermen continue to have jobs. You know, you have to hit people from all these different angles and one of them is going to appeal. Mm. Um, and if it doesn't mm-hmm. appeal to them, then I'm not going to spend any time on them anyway, right? Like, great, let's move on. And, and in fact, demographically, what we see is mid millennials and younger, both genders, 100% behind seaweed. Millennial mm. women up to Xers, women, sure. Men, Gen Xers and over, generally aren't our demographic. <laughs> not um, these two these two masculine men that have been told they're too masculine on this podcast are firm seaweed cup believers there you go i mean millennials and younger are and that's also because men are making buying decisions in their 20s and 30s and early 40s now because believe it or not us young young millennials or mid millennials are actually in our 40s now um but you know we we all like to think of ourselves as younger um but you know, I think that that's something that I find really interesting as well is like when you think about marketing, who are you actually marketing to? And do you go for the mm-hmm. people who it takes a lot of a lift? No, you go for the people who are looking for the future of their planet, for their own health. But also men at that age are not making the buying decisions in the household. The people in the millennials and younger are and they're interested in creating a better planet. And that's how we're bringing people to the brand for the first time. And then mm-hmm. once they try it, it has to be really, really good. People can right. buy first for their sustainability goals. They'll buy second for the taste. And that's where our products really, you know, shine. Once we have first purchase, we see, all, you know, most people come back for a second. I wonder if I'm like, so I'm putting my sales hat on, like category development. Like we always compare when you're having these conversations with retailers, it's, you know, what are category velocity expectations? How are you performing against the category? But because you're trying to break into various categories with this entirely mm-hmm. new piece of innovation. Like where do you compare yourself? Like who do you compare yourself to? What are you trying to achieve within the category? Talk, talk to us mm-hmm. about those interactions with the retailers. Retailers. I have to say like, um, you know, to, to be kind of brand loyal, but true, I'm not doing this to try to get sales, but uh, Whole Foods Market and Sprouts Farmers Market have both been massive champions of our work. Love that. Um, and to see, you know, just on June 20th, we're going down to um, Austin uh, as the invited grocery vendor, one out of the entire all of them to talk about our mission to the entire senior team, because they're like, this 
is the type of brand that is actually walking the walk. Um, yeah. It's similarly with Sprouts. I mean, you guys saw at Expo West, you might've seen like our key buyer from Sprouts just came back and flipped burgers with us for a while. I mean, people oh, are dedicated awesome. so cool. to what we're doing and mm. they want us to succeed. That doesn't always transfer into people taking it on the shelf. And I think mm. um, people are always like, great, you know, I want this to be the case. Let me help you. And let me help you target our market. And I think a perfect example is like, hey, the, your kelp cubes are really, really beautiful. We want them. We know they will sell, but they will not sell unless you tell us on the front cover how I'm supposed to use it. I'm like, great, help us with our boxes then, right? Like right, we're learning right. too. You're the expert on selling to your customers. We're the expert on making kelp. So tell us. So mm -hmm. it's also, I think, going into this with really dropping any hubris. I see so many people in the CPG sector, so many founders and entrepreneurs who the swagger of just like, I know best. I am, mm. you know, the person who is going to sell you know, something vapid like a popcorn with a semi-regenerative mm. sprinkle on it or some shit. Um, but, you know, like, they, there's, like, they, that like, umami you know, sprinkle on top. No, I, I, have, I have a little bit of sprinkle. You know, it's, it's, you know, we're doing things better with our regenerative popcorn. You're like, okay, cool. Um, but, you know, like, no, no offense to popcorn, but I think um, we're doing something that's so different and so new that if we don't have our minds open to learning from as many people as we can and mm. getting the people who are helping us on board as supporters of what we're doing, mm. the vast majority of our placements in retail or in ingredient, you know, people wanting to use our product is because they are inspired by what we're doing. And mm. I think like for example, Lollyware, they're coming out with a uh, seaweed straw. Our product is more expensive than Wild Harvest mm. by a lot. And mm. they have a price point they have to reach because they're straw. Mm. But they're working with us to figure out how do we make this work? How do we get, and we'll be announcing a big partnership next month with them. Um, but because it's the right thing and because they're excited about working with a woman-run company who's investing in the future of Maine. And I think... Mm. Um, I think that's really been fun for us is just dropping the hubris and being like, teach us. Yeah. Where do we want kelp? Because we're not a sea veggie burger company. We're not a kelp cube company. We're not a mm -hmm. fermented seaweed mm -hmm. salad company. We're a kelp company. And mm -hmm. what can we do to get as much kelp as possible out to consumers so that we can get more farmers in the water? Because the situation is urgent. We need to act mm -hmm. now. And we need mm -hmm. to get more farms in the water with more fishermen with diversified incomes. And we need to do it now. So the mm -hmm. more people who buy whatever it is that we make, the more we can have an impact. Hmm. And I, I would almost add, you're not a kelp company, you're a main economic development company, which is like what all these businesses need to be. And which is why I think Kyle and I are so passionate about talking about brands, because brands are either parts of, they're not either, they're always parts of the ecosystem that is doing that economic development piece. And I think, you know, like more vertical integration, more partnerships, more diverse capital stacks, like we need all, all those things. So curious, if you can just give us like a brief peek behind the curtain of like, how have you set up the different business entities if there is multiple entities and like, how have you funded this whole thing? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's, there's a big difference behind if, if a nonprofit has to do work in an area, it's usually, it should be to set something up to disappear. So what I mean by that is, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. 
if there are market solutions for a problem, mm -hmm. there's no need for nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And this is in the food and ag space. I, I can't speak for, you know, right. social services is a completely different scenario, right? That's, right? that's separate. But in the food and agriculture space or seafood, if there's a nonprofit that's not working to put themselves out of business, mm -hmm. then they're not working toward the right solution. Mm -hmm. And I think for Atlantic Sea Farms, people say, are you a nonprofit? And I'm like, absolutely. We're not profitable yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's <laughs> it. We, have, we, have a, we have a path to profitability. Mm -hmm. If we are not profitable, this is not a viable economic mm -hmm. solution. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to be hit by a bus in five years. And every funder needs to be able to hit by a bus and this still needs to continue. Right. And right. I think, you know, when you're looking at constant grant cycles as a nonprofit or as sort of like regenerative thinking, like that's great. But unless mm -hmm. it can stand on its own two feet without right. the whims of philanthropy, mm -hmm. then you're not you're 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 not proving anything. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, if I'm going to build a network of hundred farmers growing a hundred thousand pounds in Maine in the next four years, they need to know that their product is going to be sold mm -hmm. and they need to know that their kids should invest in it. This is their investment mm -hmm. and they're leading this future. So I think that's where we, why a brand is so important to us and why profitability mm -hmm. is if we are insanely profitable because we did good and because we're doing well by doing good, mm -hmm. then we've actually really proven that this is viable industry until we do that. We've proven nothing. So mm -hmm. um, right now we do, I'm not independently wealthy at all. Uh, <laughs> and I, I always think it's funny when people are like, um, Oh yeah. Seed friends and family money. I'm like, whose friends and family are you talking to? <laughs> uh, why don't I have friends and family like that? Like, um, and, and, uh, that's certainly not the world I came from. Um, and, and in fact, I, you know, someday when I'm, when I'm older and we've made this a huge success, my goal would be to start an entire fund called friends and family to act as that mm. for the ugly entrepreneurs that, mm. uh, cause that's, it's a ridiculous concept that friends and family fund people because what we're doing is we're saying 99% of people will never have the opportunity because they yeah. don't have, they're not from the social networks that allow them to do that. Uh, but similarly, women only receive 2% of the venture funding in the country right now, mm -hmm. even though they run 50% of the businesses. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's wow. a staggering statistic. And if we're not talking yeah. about yeah. That venture I'm not really sure what we're talking about, but that's that statistic is it speaks for itself. Two percent. I remember yep. someone said, "Yeah, but Brie, when you add a male co-founder to it, it's nine percent." Mm. Not the right response. Yeah, like, no. yeah, okay, uh, <laughs> that's even worse. Um, yeah, yeah. So, two uh, percent is a pretty bleak number. And when you look at regenerative agriculture, the the funding is is pretty bleak for for most of those brands. So mm -hmm. we have really um, run against the tide in pretty much every way on those statistics, which uh, makes me really proud of what we're doing. But also, hopefully, mm -hmm. can blaze the path for others that can step behind us. And it's not because I'm from money, uh, mm -hmm. you know. And it's 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 simply through you know a lot of luck, quite frankly. Um, but also a, a firm business idea that people really could get behind and get excited about. Um, but we we are mostly venture backed right now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, those are all venture funds that are based at sort of the nexus of impact and profit. So mm-hmm. we don't take pure impact money and we certainly wouldn't bring on someone that's like pure hedge funds. We need the big sort of uh, hockey stick growth right now kind of funder, mm-hmm. um, but somewhere mm-hmm. in between because we need to be we need to be held accountable to growth and uh, profitability in order to be able to serve the people that we're, we're trying to serve, which is the fishermen that we're working with. Yeah. I want to push back on one thing. You mentioned luck. Yeah. And to me, uh, luck is where hard work meets opportunity. Um, <laughs> yep. So, so whatever 100%. luck you ran into, I think that, you know, there's probably a bit more credit than you gave yourself, on the, at least in that statement. It's, no, um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a lot of grit too, but I mean, it always, it's always luck too, right? Like that's always yeah. part of life, right? Yeah. You, you, you grit, you work hard, you have a fundamental business that I, idea that makes sense. You do really, really good work. Um, you know, and, and in some areas we've had nothing but bad luck. Like we, mm. two weeks prior to COVID hitting, we launched a giant bowl with, uh, David Chang and Sweetgreen. There is billboards mm. in the middle of Times Square that said, uh. buy kelp at Sweetgreen with David Chang holding up a big thing of kelp. And, uh, we had no retail presence and we mm. were like, we've done it. We're going to sell out of kelp. Like let's get more farmers in the water. And then three weeks later, there was a picture of Times Square being empty Mm. with that stupid billboard right in the background that was (laughs) screaming at us. Um, But you know, there's, and you get back up, you, you, you know, but I still consider myself just so fortunate to number one, have been able to live on this coast and see this tremendous opportunity. There's a lot of luck that comes from, building up strong relationships with fishermen and having them trust me and then being like, yeah, sure, I'll do this. Because mm-hmm. it takes the first three to prove it out so that other mm-hmm. people get in. And without those first three, we would be nowhere. And then mm-hmm. the radios start going off like, hey, guys, they actually pick up that kelp. Where do you think they're going with it? What are they doing with kelp? <laughs> like, um, you know, and, and then kind of going from there. So it's it's a combination of a lot of things. But um you know, it's we we will likely be raising one more pretty significant round, um, really bringing on investors, continuing to bring on investors that believe in what we're doing, and really putting mm-hmm. the people of the business at the core of what we're doing, and the consumers on the other end of the planet. Um, and then hopefully we'll be you know in a place where we can look out and assess like, okay, do we continue? Do we become sort of um, the brand that you know starts building farms in? other places and really like taking this model and replicating it elsewhere or, you know, what do we do? So we are actually starting to work in Alaska next year. Uh, Mm. We have a farm in Rhode Island this year that we work with. Um, And so we are starting to kind of move off geographically because there's, there's a lot of opportunity elsewhere to also kind of replicate this model. Mm. That's incredible. Um, Yeah. I want to take us to the future. What, what the future holds for Atlantic Sea Farms and, there's also two questions I have failed to ask so far. So if you can somehow tie both of these into your answer, that'd be great. Um, number <laughs> one, I, I'd like to learn more about the nutritional density piece of sea vegetables in general. And then mm. number two, like all the potential utilizations of seaweed, kelp, sea vegetables, and like that, whether that be animal feed, plastics, et cetera. Um, so I, I've given you quite a task to try to, you know, answer the future of the brand while incorporating those two things. But to just putting it out there, you know, what, what's the future hold for Atlantic Sea Farms? So right now we're growing two species of seaweeds, skinny kelp and sugar kelp. Skinny kelp is only found in Maine. How many species are there? 
So uh, there are currently about 195 macroalgae species in wow. Maine. There's in Maine. Uh, wow. in Maine, in the Gulf of Maine, there's another 100 plus in Alaska. I was in New Zealand earlier this year. They have over a thousand native species of macroalgae. Oh my goodness. About 400 of them that don't exist anywhere but New Zealand. That's cool. Um, so the the opportunities are, and when I, when I say this, I mean it honestly, the opportunities are boundless. Mm-hmm. And I don't think yeah. we've even scratched the surface. I mean, it almost feels disrespectful to just call it all kelp. Yeah, it'd be like if we only if we didn't have names like corn and sweet potato, we just called everything vegetables. You know, like there's that level of diversity. It just it it seems borderline disrespectful to the plant. It it kind of is. Uh, There's so our um, seaweed scientist who, uh, if you're a seaweed scientist, you're called a phycologist for just a fun (laughs) piece of uh, trivia for for parties. Um, Our phycologist on staff, who's who's just absolutely brilliant. We were at a board meeting uh, last month and I, I said to him beforehand, like, hey, you know, just let's make sure that, you know, we're going to be presenting on a lot of the science. I think, you know, something that'll be really helpful is if you boil it down to make sure that it's really kind of accessible so everyone can use the language that you're using. It's great. And I had never heard him say this before and I couldn't, I lost it in the middle of the meeting. I couldn't keep a straight face. He said, so one of the new species we're, we're working to grow is a red seaweed, and it's um, got 40% protein content. It's amazing. It's never wow. been grown mm. at scale in the ocean. We have a number of years before we're going to be able to commercialize it, if we can at all, but we're working on it. Um, mm. And it is native to the Gulf of Maine. It's not like we're introducing anything, but we would be taking pressure off the wild beds because it's a highly commercial species. And it's, and it's called dulse. And he said, um, you know, just for clarity, we are closer – we are closer related genetically to mushrooms than dulse is to kelp. <laughs> what? Wow. And dulse is wow. a type of kelp. Uh, no, yes. dulse, is, dulse is a red seaweed. Uh, so kelp okay. is a species of brown seaweed. Um, wow. So, and, but that when he smart. said that, it just it really got, I was like, I guess that's what I meant by dialing it down to the, but I, yeah. I can't kind of uh-huh. get that out of my head. Um, wow. But it's, you know, the morphology, the genetic makeup, the, you know, it, all of it is so different. So I think, you know, in, in Asia, in, in East Asia, people have been growing seaweeds for about 400 years. They've been growing commercially, like industrially sized and since the 70s. And mm-hmm. there's still only between five and 10 species grown at scale. Mm-hmm. And wow. we have... We are so at the, and they use it mostly for food or food extracts. So um, there are certain types of seaweed in Indonesia, for example, like when you, they're in your toothpaste, your, your shampoo, they're in sort of everything you use, but it's either a food or sort of a emulsifier. Mm. Um, what we can do with seaweed is not even remotely started. And I talk about bioplastics. That's kind of a, a first step that we're working on. But there's also, you know, things called phacoidins, a nutrient, a piece, a, a key nutrient in many kelps called phacoidins, which are being more and more studied now that people think might actually be, um, you know, key to unlocking some of the issues around Alzheimer's. Wow. Whoa. Are, yeah, there's types of, and, and there's a lot more research to be done. I'm not going to so say So potential here, pharmaceutical applications. Huge. Mm. 
huge potential pharmaceutical applications. And again, we're probably three to 10 years away from really knowing those, but some mm-hmm. really exciting work coming out of some of, of, of the US and Europe in particular around the Fucoidin studies. Iodine is another one. You know, we used to all eat iodized salt. Yeah. Uh, we don't anymore. And people aren't, the reason that iodine was added to salt in the 40s and 50s is because people weren't eating enough iodine. We're still mm-hmm. not eating enough iodine as that has been sort of faded, phased out. And kelp has a ton of iodine in it, um, which is great for thyroid function. Without iodine, our thyroids don't function. And some, there's some mm-hmm. assessments that around 30% of the American population has thyroid dysfunction. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of like, you kind of add these things, plus then it's just delicious if you look at kind of meat alternatives, um, you know, protein content and many seaweeds that we're not commercially growing are extremely high mm-hmm. uh, and they improve the environment. So, I, you know, when I look at the future of, of Atlantic Sea Farms, it's not kelp. It's, you know, lots of different seaweeds. It's a custom grower. It's being able to say, hey, you want more polyphenols for your bioplastics? I've, I've been able to cultivate mm-hmm. this species of shotgun kelp that is 60% polyphenols and we'll process that into bioplastics to help eliminate the plastic bag problem. You know, it's, it's, there's so many ways to go with this and at the base of it, if Atlantic Sea Farms is doing it, it's being led by fishermen and I can't kind of go to that enough. Um, Mm -hmm. we, We are creating a system where we can lead the way Mm-hmm. for fishermen to diversify so that in 30, 40, 50 years, we look at the coast of Maine, we look at the coast of Alaska, um, we look at the coast of New Zealand, and we see seaweed being the answer for health issues, for environmental issues, for food issues, for whatever, and mm. we see thriving working waterfronts that are maybe even more working waterfront infrastructure than we have now instead of yachts. Hmm. It's crazy. It sounds like a circular powerhouse of opportunities. Um, and I'm also I'm shout out to, to somehow managing to answer the future outlook question while incorporating yeah. both, uh, <laughs> both sub questions in there. So great work. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I Bree, talk about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Brie, last question to take us home was the question we kind of asked all of our guests, which is, how can regen brands get to 50% market share by 2050? What needs to happen? Um, I think there's a few things that need to happen. I think one, people need to feel, consumers need to feel and understand, not just understand, but really feel in their hearts that they mm-hmm. can make decisions at the grocery store that will help improve the planet. And that's going to take green and blue washing because in my industry it's called blue washing Mm. um to be really called out and evaporated because Mm. when people feel like they're making good decisions and then find out that they're not that's even more uh terrifying to me that loss of hope is even more terrifying than people who haven't started the process so it's going to take regenerative brands to be honest about who they are and what they're doing and how they're doing it Um, I also think it's going to take buyers decisions to set goals and really work to put those into place. Um, And Mm. I think those goals need to be put place around people and planet, not just technology solutions. And Mm. I think right now, sometimes the fastest way for a brand like, you know, 
you know, I mean, a, a grocery chain like Kroger or Walmart or whatever mm-hmm. to reach their goals is to put all goals in a, in a place that are achieved through carbon offsets that are, yeah. that mm-hmm. are achieved through technology rather than through meaningful sourcing. And I mm-hmm. think people being able to hold these places accountable are going to help brands like Atlantic Sea Farms be able to, to plug in. I think the other, the other thing that's going to need to happen in a really big way is for packaging companies um, mm. to catch up with consumer demand. Cause right now that I think that is a huge problem for regenerative brands like Atlantic Sea Farms is there's mm. not a lot of packaging, particularly in the frozen and refrigerated mm. space that is regenerative in and of itself and functional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it's going to be, ta- it's going to take dollars uh, from all of the people who want to make the planet better instead of putting them into climate nonprofits or, you know, mm. solutions that make them feel better through philanthropy. It's going to be investing in future businesses that can actually cha- change the game rather than uh, run programming. Mm. I think both Anthony and I are still because your answer incorporated my personal project, passion project, and Anthony's, mm-hmm. um, and various mm-hmm. others. Um, but I think you hit the nail on the head and you did a really good job of kind of breaking down each different sector that needs what type of support to make this thing work. Um, I read an interesting article earlier this week, I think on Grocery Dive, about how regenerative investments are faltering because there's no level of standardization to prove the regenerative claims being made by the brands. And until that is standardized, the investment community just doesn't really have the mechanism to say like, okay, I believe in this or I don't. So to your mm. point about transparency and like making sure that like the regenerative claims are actually legit, totally agree mm. that that needs to happen. At the same time, it's such a complex, complicated problem because measuring the impact of regenerative aquaculture versus grass-fed bison, completely different on so yeah. many levels. So it's a huge challenge that we're going to have to face as a movement, but something that needs to be done. Well, and I think with that, you know, getting kind of heady for a second is, is understanding the value of investments. I think so many times regenerative investors or people who claim to be regenerative investors still Mm -hmm. want to see the growth of uh, what is liquid death. What is that mm-hmm. bottle water company? And I don't know anything yeah. about them. I shouldn't, I shouldn't mm-hmm. point to like a specific brand, but like growth at all costs mm-hmm. is what gives you the hockey stick. Mm-hmm. If you're right. a regenerative, if you're an investor in regenerative brands, you have to recognize that it, it cannot be growth at all costs mm-hmm. and growth. Yes. Substantial growth. Absolutely. Market rate mm-hmm. returns. Sure. Mm. growth at all costs absolutely not that has what been what has gotten us into the problem we're in environmentally Mm. and Mm. i think that there needs to be some value placed around environmental impact in the investing space and Mm. i think that's not in the form of carbon credits but Mm. as far as you know figuring out some sort of people much smarter than me should be looking into figuring out like how do we in financially incentivize those sort of investments beyond car- again beyond carbon credits because they mean nothing mm-hmm. um but like how can we how can we kind of reward that because i do think there's a lot of talk around regeneration um mm-hmm. and it in it often is very incongruent with the growth expectations and the and the returns that people want to see i mean a 10x return on a five year investment in regenerative aqua, aquaculture means growth mm-hmm. at all costs. 
Yeah. And and uh, you got to wonder when when funds have that sort of um, expectation mm. if we're really talking about regeneration or if we're talking about greenwashing and making mm. sort of social signaling decisions. I think a perfect example is 90% of solar panels, residential solar panels installed in the United States are pointed toward the road. Not necessarily mm. because that's where the sun signs but because mm. people want to show that, you know, some, I'm not saying 90% of the time it's not where the sun shines, but mm. a lot of the time it's not, it's because people want to see, people want to show their neighbors that they put up solar panels because it's social mm. signaling that mm. they are environmentally conscious. And, and uh, you know, that's what you see with a lot of regen funds too. And I think mm. we as a community need to be challenging that as, as, you know, growth at all costs is not regenerative. Um, but how mm. can we show that, you know, Growth is really, really important. Profitability is really, really important. 5x returns, should we should be able to show really good growth with that. But maybe our expectations around how companies should grow is part of the problem and why our planet is broken. Mm. God, Bree, you and I could have a whole separate 90-minute conversation about that. Um, so many things I, I'd, I'd like to add there. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. And I think you know it comes down to a few things, right? It comes down to the venture model is not the right model for all these businesses. And a lot of times the venture money needs to be married with other forms of capital that make a stack that can satisfy all those things that you just talked about. So it's about having really strong individual tools and then us capital stacking across the ecosystem. And that is really, we're, we are massively undercapitalized as as an ecosystem. So that's one problem. And then we need those individual entities created and then we need them to work together. And I yeah. think we can get there, but like that's that's the solve for those things that, that you said. I mean, in my opinion. totally. And I will say we've now raised nine million dollars in total, mm-hmm. and it's all from people like that. They Congrats. are out mm-hmm. there. There are yeah, amazing people out there that really truly stand behind what they're saying, and mm-hmm. um, those people are few and far between. But man, when you get them. Like the support that we have for our business from our investor, our shareholder group is unbelievably cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that they're not high pressure. Of course they are. They want us to mm-hmm. to meet to meet our goals. Um, right. But man, it's they are out there. I just wish there were a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. We're working on it. Yeah. Also, I just want to expand a little bit on the uh, the example you presented between Atlantic Sea Farms and Liquid Death. You know, Liquid Death from an innovation standpoint, they're putting water, which humans have been consuming for ever, literally, mm-hmm. into an aluminum can, which has been produced since you know probably the fifties, maybe before that. Like mm-hmm. the supply chain doesn't have to change for a brand like that to grow, but to get you know lobster fishermen to learn and understand about aquaculture, to teach them to to solve all these problems, like that takes time. You know, and mm-hmm. it's just to your point, Brie, like if we're really trying to change the food system, those expectations have to shift because the models are completely different. And there's no way that a regenerative brand who's truly doing things the right way can achieve those same types of growth numbers. They can't. But you know what would be, you know, I said liquid death, but let's talk about General Mills, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know what would really blow Atlantic Sea Farms up? General Mills putting kelp powder, our kelp powder, in Mm -hmm. three of their SKUs. Mm -hmm. These brands have the ability, you know, we do ingredient, you know, we're not just a brand. Our brand is Mm -hmm. a small component of our work. And to be like, okay, liquid death, like take that growth, put some kelp in it. 
Yeah. Right. Like let's, let's, Love it. let's like, let's challenge you to let's go Unilever. Mm, let's, let's, yeah. uh, let's put kelp in a cracker. Cause you know what? It also sells. It's mm. not a risk. Um, you know, I think, like I said, Whole Foods is doing some amazing work They're in Kroger right now. They're doing a bunch of innovation work with their, with their brand on our kelp. Like, cool. Let's mm. actually stand where we, where we, uh, say we're going to. So I think, I think people are trying. I do think though there's huge opportunity for those those brands that have had that incredible growth to really mm. assess their supply chain and be like, okay, cool, we've gotten here and mm. we did it at growth at all costs. Now, mm-hmm. now that we're here, what can we do that actually changes the game? Hashtag oh, yeah. put some kelp in it. Put some kelp in it. Kelp in everything. Right, kelp in it. Eat, eat more kelp. More, more <laughs> exactly. of the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Brie, you're a legend. Thank you so much for joining us. This is amazing. Thank you, guys. It was so great to talk to you. For show notes, episode transcripts, and more information on our guests and what we discuss on the show, check out our website, regen-brands.com. That is regen-brands.com. You can also find our Regen Recaps on the website. Regen recaps take less than five minutes to read and cover all the key points of the full hour long conversations. You can check out our YouTube channel, Regen Brands Podcast, for all of our episodes with both video and audio. The best way to support our work is to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, subscribe to future episodes, and share the show with your friends. Thanks for tuning in to the Regen Brands Podcast, brought to you by the Regen Coalition and Outlaw Ventures. We hope you learned something new in this episode and it empowers you to use your voice, your time, and your dollars to help us build a better and more regenerative food system. Love you guys.